All right. Well, you've just ruined me. I just need to have donuts now every day. Carolyn, I heard Buttermilk Drop also has some really, really good king cakes. So I'm excited for Mardi Gras because I will be going to Buttermilk Drop for my first king cake of the season. Oh, we have to have a king cake off between Dongfang and Buttermilk Drop. And everybody else's favorites, you know, but oh boy. Okay. <laughs> this is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, a unique local charter school would have sailed through its charter renewal process if the newly designed best assessment framework had been in place. But because those new standards don't take effect until next year, the school is now a victim of its latest testing scores and will be closed. And an iconic local bakery was hit by a hack of its interface with Uber Eats and was facing big losses in revenue as we head into the holiday season. Those stories, insight and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, education reporter Marta Juson. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. Photojournalist Lachance Perry. Hi, Lachance. Hi. And managing editor Katie Rechtal. Hey, Katie. Hey. So, Marta, we've been talking about the latest report card on local schools from the State Department of Education, and we were waiting to see what Superintendent Avis Williams was going to do, what she decided about those renewals and closures that were sitting on her desk based on the report. And we finally got that at a meeting recently. Can you first outline what she decided? There were three schools that we were worried um, were going to face closure, and that was the Living School, Moton Elementary, and uh, Lafayette Academy. And in the end, um, Lafayette Academy and Moton both went through this uh, process of kind of appeals process where they present their data and attempt to stay open, but uh, both kind of realized that they weren't going to make the cut, and so they ended up kind of surrendering their charters, uh, you you can say. And they'll be taken over by other operators next spring. So the school buildings will remain open with those students. Um, and then for living in school, um, they also kind of went through that. They went through that same fight, you know, fighting with their test scores, their graduation rates and all that they've been doing. Um, but came up short for the superintendent who recommended that they um, not be allowed to finish the fifth year of their five year contract, um, which is kind of the standard process for renewals for charter schools. Um but is especially interesting for living school because it is a high school that grew one grade at a time. So at the end of your fourth year, you've only just had your first graduating class. Right. Okay. And it's not counted because graduation rates lag a year, which I'm sure we, we can get into all those details in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So they just got their charter in 2019, as you said, and they started slowly with just one grade at a time. But they had a really unique approach to their to educating the kids. And Lachance has some beautiful pictures of some of the kids that had matriculated through that school. Can you tell us what their approach was and how it how it was differentiated from other charter schools? Yeah, I'll let Katie or Lachance handle that because they were on campus last week. And I know Katie knows the the founder and some of the teachers there. Yeah. Tell us about it, you guys. Uh, I mean, I, I can just maybe start and just say that one of their tenets is that they really, um, they do project-based learning, that they believe that people in general, especially children, learn best when they're hands-on with everything. And so I know, chance you're so great at description, so I think maybe you can talk about what we saw 
related to that, but that's their the whole school is like filled with projects. It's amazing. Yeah, honestly, um, Living School was not like any other school that I've ever seen, even just upon entering. Um, I think one of the interesting things about Living School is is location. So it's located in this um, old mall, old plaza, pretty much, and it's surrounded by a bunch of shops. So you wouldn't even know that it was a school. But as soon as you step in, you can tell this is a space for education and a space for learning. You can just see the decor on the wall. They have beautiful murals that um, told the history of the school and people that were important to the history of the school. But it also had a lot of different themes that they really focused on. And one of the other things that I thought it was interesting is they kept saying they um, had a very democratic school. So it was um, very guided by democracy. And it was very much a space where everybody was accepted of one another. And then I really enjoyed how the students had the autonomy to really individualize their learning. So yes, it was project-based, but I think that the, the the teachers there took extra special care to learn the students, modify whatever they're learning to the students' specific interests, um, the, the things that they needed to learn and excel, and actually their skill sets. I met great students who were exceptionally talented artists, who were exceptionally talented uh, crafters. And it's just so many different layers that um, they focus on teaching the student how to live and how to add to life that's outside of the classroom. So it was definitely a very unique experience. And the student body was made up of a, a large percentage of EL mm-hmm. learners. And I think what I read in the story, Marta, is the focus was really more holistic on each kid versus um, these, I don't know, not arbitrary, but but statewide um, marks, you know, that they have to teach to. It, it seemed like it was much more tailored. Right. And they're right. And for high school grades, right, the high school state scores that are issued to the school, um, those are made up of components of uh, your graduation rate the types of either certifications or this other assessment called work keys that your students take, your students' standardized test scores, um, and a few other measures. But you're right that that project-based learning um, and doing those kind of assignments in the classroom kind of it allows students to you know connect a little more with what they're learning. Um, less just you know paper and pen test, I guess, or they're probably online now. But um, you know, and I think you saw that in. There were such passionate speeches at that board meeting on Monday night, and, and I'm sure we're getting there, but one person in particular is a professor who has sat on the board, and he said, you know, the, these we had a rough year with test scores, um, which are really pulling us down because that graduation date is not being counted into that score, but what better metric to measure students by than a, instead of one test at one point in time in the year, then multiple evaluators through multiple times in the year uh, with multiple exams and grades and assignments. And he's like, that's literally what a high school diploma is. That's literally what it is. That's all those grades over all those years and classes. And they either result in a diploma or not. And you had 100% of special education students get a diploma and more than 90% of students in the senior class, I think, right, Katie, get a diploma. So he he said that's the, the best measure we could have. Yeah. 
Lachance, tell me about what your experience of, of walking in. So um, one of the things that, that strikes me is the openness. So typically, you know, when you go into schools, there's like not really as many open spaces outside of, you know, when you go into these specific classrooms, but their cafeteria sits in the middle is pretty much one of the first things that you see. And then they have this immediate space of just openness for the kids to pretty much do whatever. Um, they walked freely around. Everything was sort of right there, which I think worked for the to the closeness of the students to keep them close knit. But every different every classroom was unique and uh, specifically tailored not only to um, what the teacher was teaching, but it spoke a lot about who the teacher was as well. And I think that that helped the students see that all people are individuals and treat them based off an individual level as well. To me, it fits um, very much so the culture of that school. So I think the location also definitely fits that. And I really like how the uh, the teachers take a lot of strides to connect the students to their community around them. I think one of the interesting things that they also showed us was that the students are working on a museum which will tell the history of bananas and the banana trade here in New Orleans. But not only is it a garden, it's um they want it to be a museum. So mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting how they're able to turn a garden into a museum. And also they informed us that that was the only museum that's in the East, which is very, very interesting that, you know, these students can connect to their history, but also provide something that is very needed in their community. So they're definitely getting a holistic uh, teaching approach. And I like how it pushes the teachers to be different and creative with what they're teaching them instead of a set thing that every student has to learn. They, they really take control of their learning. And I think that it really gives them autonomy to be the individuals they are. Lissette, did you love when we met um, some of the students in the classroom and one of them happened to be an artist who was, I think, sketching on a notebook during science class. And his teacher, um, we were in the biology classroom, and his teacher said, okay, well, now you're going to be the, the class artist, right? And he did these beautiful images that then they turned into negative images. So there are these intricate drawings of plants that are black with white um, hmm. pencil markings. I mean, they're so beautiful, don't you think? And they're hanging in the corner of the classroom. And that student was in there. And he, it was, I think, a way to sort of keep him engaged because he was artistic, but he was in the biology class, right? I don't know. Yeah, I definitely want to give a, um, a big shout out to Ron Brody. I think that he definitely took the time to learn his students. And you can just tell the students have a very, very special place um, in their hearts for him. And just the way that he goes about engaging these students is interesting. And what Katie was just talking about was that the class was working on a botany project but the student didn't really express any interest in the science side so um you know Mr. Brody told him like you know every scientist needs an artist so while we're focusing on the plants I really want you to focus on the drawings and to even challenge his um artistic abilities mm. instead of you know what 
we typically draw on, which is white paper with black pencil, he gave him the opposite. He gave him uh, black paper with a white pencil and really challenged him to draw out the skeletons and just really sketch these different plants. And it was absolutely amazing. And when I talked to that student, his favorite thing was the fact that Mr. Brody kept them, you know, and when you look around the classroom, there's a lot of artwork from the different students that he likes to showcase. Mm. And I think in even keeping that gives the students a sense of pride that, hey, something that I'm doing, something that I created really matters, which is something that once again, we don't really get to see a lot in these different learning spaces. One of the other cool projects that um, they were working on as well was a lot of the English learners um, or a lot of the and the major a big um a big majority of the English learning population in that school is from Honduras. So they were partnered together on um, a, a, a project where they pretty much were looking at how the construction that we see everyday construction and uh, harms and impacts the environment. So what they did was they created a house and the way they explained it is every, you know, creature needs something to live in. So they took um, the structure of like a house where humans will live but underneath it they put a lot of things that were um that we miss or that we disturb when we're building the building these different homes and different spaces so there was creatures there was trash it was these different things that just really show how simple infrastructure definitely impacts the environment even though it's necessary, it does impact in ways that we don't think about. Mm. And those students also also were challenged to present everything that they learned about that project in English. So I think it was a, a very interesting blend of challenging where students needed to learn, but also challenging them to take a look at how they impact what's happening around them as right. well. Cool. So Marta, there's a particular set of circumstances that uh, aligned, let's say, in a in a bad way to force the closure, the, the particular irony is that the new set of um, the framework that's setting, that is now in place or will be in place would have allowed the school to remain open, but it's not in place yet. So can you describe what that framework is that led to this decision and what how they could have stayed open had the new set of guidelines been in place now? Yeah, so there's kind of two things happening there. One is that um, uh, Superintendent Williams was tasked with reworking uh, this document that's called the Charter School Accountability Framework or the CSAF. And that's kind of the like guiding governing document between charter schools and the school district. Um, and so she had been, she and her team had been working on revising that along with several school administrators, including uh, Stefan Pasternak, who is the head of Living School. And so Katie, help me with the specifics on this. Well, there's two things. One is that it's the superintendent's recommendation but it's the school board's decision. Right. And and in the end, what as I've been hearing today, Marta and you and I can talk about this, is that it the people who can reverse it and the people who made this decision are is the school board. The superintendent was following those guidelines that Mar, Mar, Marta was just telling us about in order to make recommendations to the school board, but the school board is the one that made the decision. So and I just want to be clear about that. Sure. But you, you do say in the story that they have never not gone along with her recommendations. It, that would be unprecedented. Right. 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 And we do right. have kind of, a, we have an interesting past of that, you know, like 15 years ago, the school board was the one who recommended uh, charter school contracts and approved them. 
Then it shifted with the recovery school district uh, coming back. All that power was given to the superintendent. And now we've shifted again to where the superintendent makes those recommendations to the school board and the school board makes the decision. Okay. So it's it's kind of been an interesting shift in the change of power over the years. But now that power is absolutely back in front of the elected representatives. Okay. All that said, um, it sounds like what you're, you're suggesting that it's possible with with a plea with, from the community, which they certainly got at that meeting, and with, you know, maybe a letter writing campaign or a TikTok campaign or whatever, that it could be rescinded. The decision to close the school may change. Are you suggesting that? I think it's at this point pretty unlikely it'll change. I, I do believe there's going to be pressure going forward. Um, but I think what Liz Chance and I saw on Monday night, I don't think I've ever been to a more uh, disheartening and heartbreaking. And I could describe the scene as like like quiet tears. There were so many people who are like quietly crying in that room um, with more than 20 people, students, staff, um, family members pleading for the school to stay open that, you know, had worked for their kid or, you know, one kid like Rio who got up there and said, I used to go to Ben Franklin. That's the best, you know, quote unquote, best high school in the state measured by state performance scores. I would cry in the hallways there. I couldn't do it. I found living school and I graduated. Mm. Um, and then a couple speakers later, a woman got up and she was like, oh my God, I was Rio's teacher. I didn't know that was happening. I'm so glad he found a living school. So I don't remember what your original question was. Well, it's but... that it's that if if these new guidelines that she was tasked with creating, if they were in place now, it would have sailed through. It would have had like a C average, oh, or, right? Yeah. So so the, the two problems are that their graduation data didn't count, and then this whole Lachance and I honestly just sat back and watched as every single board member said, "We can't do anything about this because." she had to measure the school based on the old or older current standards, not the new ones that'll go into effect next year. But it was just kind of felt like everyone was throwing up their hands um, because the board does have the power to change something. I mean, I know a lot of people keep saying we can't move the goalposts and whatever, but it really feels like this school is set up to fail in a system that um, a, like it's hard for small schools to run no matter what, um, B, if you have a high uh, percentage of students who have special needs or, you know, require additional attention to learn English as a new language, that's taking up some of your resources, too. Um, so really, it's it's just kind of ironic that in a district that's been set up to foster innovation, a school that's doing that doesn't really stand a chance. Um, and you know what? If they need some help on the academic side, a lot of members of the community just question why doesn't the district step in and help them do that, especially for this, you know, final year of a charter contract rather than pulling the rug out from under 180 kids who say that this is like the only place they've ever found a school that um, is really serving them. Right. The the um, I think a key point, too, is that the new metrics that they passed in August are supposed to be more equitable. They were changed because the old metrics were considered inequitable. So the school board passed them, but they are going to use the past in more inequitable metrics to judge this school. And they, even though they didn't have graduation data, the way that schools who don't have graduation data are scored is that they take they double the assessment scores. So they double the ACT and the LEAP scores. And so you're basically magnifying a dip, their dip in scores.
scores twice to make them. And so this, they got a dip in scores. It hurt doubly because their graduation data, which was impressive, cannot count. So it's like this weird, I mean, it's unfair in so many ways. And the other way that the, the metrics have changed <coughs> is that the school board decided that they would decrease the amount that the ACT test counts and they would increase the amount of the progress index. And, and in that, and those, and all of those changes, the living school would have done well. Okay. There's, there's also a, a, I don't want to call it a suggestion, but there's just notice in your story. You, you put the, the fact down that this school, unlike the other two that were facing closures, is not owned by the district. It's, yeah, I, you know, no one's going to come out and say it, but I, I don't think there's any way you can pretend like yeah. students not in a district-owned building when property insurance costs are soaring um, is not... not a factor some somewhere in the mix. Um, yeah. You know, property insurance is really expensive. Schools that don't, that aren't filled to capacity because enrollment has not grown as we thought it would in the city. Um, you know, it's it's hard to run a school like that because your fixed costs are the same for utilities and uh, property insurance, like I said. So the district wants to, quote unquote, right size its schools and fill up those school buildings. Right. So, you know, I, I don't think anyone will say it, but I, I it's it's right there in the back of my mind. I think it's in the mind of a lot of other people, too. Yeah. So what happens to all those kids now? So, and, and again, like board members were like, you know, we can't help. We're, we have to close the school. Our hands are tied. And then they said, but we'll make sure that you get to a school, your students are enrolled in a school that will fulfill their needs. And it was just kind of a, you know, that's not exactly what happens. You <laughs> Like what you do is you go online and you select a new high school and you go through the lottery process and you hope that you get, uh, now, I guess, what is your second choice high school? So there's not a lot of certainty there for students who are making that transition. They won't know until the spring, you know. Mm-hmm. 55% of the kids come from the east, which is really neglected. And uh, the neighborhood that, that has a lot, has the highest proportion of school-age kids, but a lot of poverty as well. And the high schools that are out there, some of them are, you know, decent schools, but they are more, they're, all of them have a very traditional-based kind of education, I would say, or at least far more traditional than this. So the choices are pretty limited. There was this one poignant moment where uh, Mr. Pasternak, the leader of the school, was up there talking, and board member Ethan Ashley said, are you suggesting that the other educators in this city can't offer what you're offering and can't actually teach these children? Um, And Mr. Pasternak was like, I'm not suggesting that at all. That's not what I said. They're just they don't offer the same program that I offer. You know, like the schools Katie was talking about, they're a little more, you know, kind of college prep, straightforward, also bigger schools, you know, 800 kids and stuff like that. So, right. you know, I think it, it's just really a unique community that um, is hard. It has a hard time thriving in a district that's supposed to foster innovation. All right. Well, thank you. If you want to see what a banana Thanks. museum, the... the the um, nascent banana museum. There's great photos on uh, the website, thelensnola.org. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Hildman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, photojournalist LaChance Perry, and managing editor Katie Rechtal. 
Hi, I'm Delaney Dreyfus, environmental reporter at The Lens. You rely on The Lens for thoughtful, questioning, and thorough examinations of events and institutions in New Orleans and our region. When you support our efforts, you join in on the process of examining life and culture in a way that makes us all better citizens and better people. Support the independent news that supports you and your life. Make a tax-free donation today at thelensnola.org, and thank you. At The Lens, you all write about a lot of... Um a lot of fun things, but there is not one story that got me more literally salivating when I was reading it, just dying for donuts from the buttermilk drop. Well, tell us about the shop first. Tell us about the buttermilk drop, the operation. Shant, you want to start? Um, well, since you have a very extensive history with the buttermilk <laughs> drop, Katie, I, I think you should take it. <laughs> Every day, Katie? <laughs> Nick is every day. No, uh, I've just been going there for years. You know, it's it's like a it's a shop that has to, that started across from Colton School on St. Claude and then moved to the seventh ward on uh Dergenois, right off this major intersection, Broad and St. Bernard. And so it's been like if you want to get donuts, that's the place. You know, that's where if you go to if you take donuts to a school and you want to be popular, you go to the buttermilk drop, period. Right. And then, you know, like that's like a certain cachet because it because their stuff is really good. And they they have red velvet glazed donuts and they have these things called the buttermilk drops that are these little they're like the size of falafel. Right. If you like a golf ball. Yeah, a little bit bigger than a golf ball. And they are more, like, they're between golf and tennis, I would say. Okay. As far as the size. And they're fried, and they're so delicious. And they have red velvet variety. They have a chocolate one. They have a regular one. And they're, they're glazed, and they're so good. And they have also, you know, in recent years, they've opened up a, another storefront next door that serves shrimp and grits and egg rice with meat and all these delicious dishes. So they the breakfast is just the one of the best in town. It's so good. And then Uber Eats came along with this innovation of, hey, you don't have to leave your office or your home or anything. We'll bring you some buttermilk drops from the buttermilk drop or even, you know, as you suggested, all the other food too. And that was going along well. They were making more money probably because of Uber Eats, allowing them to have this delivery service, and then something went wrong. Right. They, um, the manager, um, Tiffany London Henry, had tried to do some banking, and she realized that the bank account had been switched. On the bank account that the proceeds from Uber Eats go to had been switched. And... So she called, she tried to call, she called the 1-800 number. She tried to call their local rep. She was getting nowhere all week. She found out on Monday and it was the entire week. And on Friday, I got a phone call saying, oh my God, we're going to lose another week of proceeds from Uber Eats. And we don't know what, because we've already lost a week in this other bank account. And now this. And so I was able to find an Uber press email and they called me and we got them on the phone. It was like an emergency, you know, and 
we got them on the phone and they froze the bank account Friday night. So we knew at least that there would be no more money going into that account, mm-hmm. but we didn't know what was going to happen next. So how Uber Eats works, Walk. let's start back a little ways. When you set up an Uber Eats account, if you're a restaurant, Uber Eats, the revenue that comes from Uber Eats goes doesn't go directly into your operating account that you have at whatever bank USA. It goes to a separate bank that Uber Eats sets up for you. It goes, I mean, what happens is it goes to, I don't know exactly like the sequence of this, but it goes through Uber Eats. Uber Eats takes their cut yep. and then sends the rest to your bank account. So it is your bank account. But I think you might have to download it or draft it down or whatever into your bank account. And there was something going on where she couldn't get into their bank account. Okay. So it already the first week had already been pulled into the foreign bank account. And then they were about ready to have the second one go. And they were try- they were trying frantically to stop it. So all the Uber um, Eats revenue that they what, had, all the Uber Eats revenue that they should have realized was was sliding away from them to a different account. And they kept trying to reach, it sounds like a customer service nightmare where they're trying to call Uber Eats and they just, there's no person, there's no one to talk to until you, you stepped in. I mean, because it was crazy, right? Chance, I mean, you were there with me on Saturday. Like, I mean, how... How upset were they about what was happening? So one of the things I want to say is, um, you know, this, this is why I appreciate the organization of the lens because we get to focus on these small people, these small businesses, these things that are really important to the community, community and that's what the buttermilk drop is. So not only was, um, you know, a community staple affected, but an actual family has been affected. This is their income. This is how they make money. And it's the holidays. With inflation, everything is so expensive nowadays to have your money cut into, especially when this is something that you've been doing for so long. I can only imagine it's not only frustrating, but heartbreaking. So I think that um, that experience for them, honestly, was probably traumatizing because they never would have thought that, you know, utilizing this third party app that's supposed to be safe and that's supposed to, you know, protect your money and that's supposed to help your business was actually hurting it in the end. Right. And the only way that this was resolved because a member of the press, Katie Rectall from The Lens, mm-hmm. that that's who they responded to. Yeah. They were they were not responding to their own customer in any other way. They reached out so many times. Um, they called, they sent emails, they um, tried to go, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Katie, but I believe that when you set up these Uber Eats accounts through companies, they have like a district representative that is suppo- that you're supposed to go to, to, um, you know, any issues or any questions that you go to. And from my understanding, they were reaching out to this, this district representative, not getting any response. And then correct me if I'm wrong, Katie, they actually said that that uh, representative hadn't worked in that area in a long time. And it's like, well, when do you update people so that if they are in need, they can go to the person to get the resources that they need. So I think that um, you know, this is one of those things where Uber definitely just was trying to save their tail when they got a little bit of heat put on them when somebody starts to, you know, ask what's going on here. So I think that, yeah, 
we definitely had a hand in putting that fire under Uber to get the, the issue resolved for them. Uber headquarters doesn't have a phone number for press. You have to email. Like, the, everything is that they, they do is digital, right? So it's difficult to try to come from the blue, from out of the blue and try to deal with Uber on something so significant. I mean, they said that they're, they, they believe that they're like the top breakfast in town as far as on Uber Eats. And so you just think about they they had like ten thousand dollars just hanging in the balance with bills coming to coming due in December. Right. It's scary. It's kind of ironic too, because you know there's like a Uber there's an actual Uber building storefront on Bayou Road, like six blocks away. But that it's got Uber, the brand name, right? The umbrella of Uber Eats, but it, it's just an empty building now. So like what a symbol for what was happening. That, that was the customer service representative who doesn't work there anymore. Um, Katie, do you get the impression or do you know if the money that was being siphoned off through this hack or these thieves, however they were, however they did it, was it just the money that was due to the business or was it also Uber Eats revenue and therefore Uber Eats didn't have as much um, response because it wasn't they weren't being stolen from. It was just the business. Yeah, so the Uber Eats had already taken its money from okay. it. And then that money went, instead of going to the Henry family's bank account, the Buttermilk Drops account, it went to this other bank account in Atlanta. Hmm. And they couldn't get anybody to change the bank account information. They couldn't get in to change that information in the app. They couldn't get, they tried the 1-800 number. They couldn't, nothing would would change it. Wow. Are they on the hook for refunding all this money? I don't know what happened behind the curtain. You know, the Wizard of Oz doesn't reveal. Uber is a little bit of the Wizard of Oz, right? So um, pay no attention to what's happening behind the curtain, young children. <laughs> but somehow the money is going back to the buttermilk drop. They just have to sign, you know, an eight-page non-disclosure agreement or something. Have they recouped that missed week, too, or I think they're going to get all of that, that money back, is my understanding. It hasn't happened yet, to my understanding. I, I had talked to them today, and they hadn't quite gotten a rep yet. That's what they were trying to deal with because their bank account still isn't, they still have don't have a bank account attached to Uber Eats yet. So they're try, they were trying to get that rep stuff ironed out today, and they had nobody who, who they could reach to on the phone. So I was calling the PR person and I just said, please, can you get a rep? Because the only person they could reach that has any touch with a human in Uber is me going to you, right? Mm -hmm. So he, I think maybe by the end of the day, they might have a, a rep. We'll see. Okay. All right. Thank you, guys. Bye. All right. See you later. Bye. All right. See ya. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, education reporter Marta Jusen, photojournalist LaChance Perry, and managing editor Katie Rechtal. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.